0: Our lives are filled with trouble. With lots of troubles and distresses of many kinds. This is the the human experience of this age and every age. I found great comfort in King David's words in Psalm 25 just this morning. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Isn't it nice to know that the king of Israel said something like, I am lonely and afflicted, the troubles of of my heart are enlarged? David's life was filled with troubles and distresses, as is yours and as is mine. But what's our greatest trouble? What's our greatest distress? Or to phrase the question another way, what's your greatest, biggest, most important problem? John is pointing at himself. Alberta, did you see that? I just want to make sure you saw that. John pointed at himself there, and he's right. <laughs> I heard a preacher say, um, "Your greatest problem is you, and my greatest problem is you." <laughs> I don't actually think that, by the way. I just heard that. I thought it was funny. But anyways, what is your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our biggest problem? David, in Psalm 25, goes on to say in the next verse, Psalm 25, 18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So yeah, affliction, trouble are there. Consider these things and forgive all my sins. Seems like David is suggesting that his greatest trouble was his sin. He asked the Lord to consider his troubles, but what he needed was forgiveness for his sins. Why? Because his sins were his greatest problem, not his enemies or his troubles or his distresses. He needed his sins forgiven because his sins created a debt that he owed to God. He understood that the Lord God of Israel was a holy God who hated sin and that sin put him into debt with the God who made him. And so he went to God with his sins because his sins were his greatest problem. What do you do with your sins, brothers and sisters, friends? Maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, here we go, talking about sin. That's what we always do at church, right? Well, yeah. Jesus came to save us from our sins. So, let's talk about our sins. What do you do with them? Brothers and sisters, what do you do with your sins? Do you hide them? Blame them on someone else? Minimize them? Rationalize them away? Maybe just flat out ignore them. You know they're in the room, but you look the other way. And of course, I wonder if you've understood that none of these approaches actually work to remove the guilt and the shame that we feel because of our sins. So what do you do with your sins? What do you like literally, what do you do with them? This this assumes by the way that you have them. <laughs> Amen? Amen. You and I have sins. Not just a sin nature, but sins. Uh, uh, things that we do contrary to what God would have us to do. Things that we don't do that, we, that God would have us to do. Thoughts, words, attitudes, desires, actions. One of our biggest problems is that, is that we often don't even see our sin. We just don't see it. But I would encourage you to think... And remember that just because we don't feel bad about something doesn't mean that it isn't sin. Our consciences need to be healed alongside every other part of us. We, I, can do and say and think things that hurt others, hurt myself, displease the Lord, all the while thinking it's okay because I don't really feel bad about it. But just because you don't feel bad about something doesn't mean it isn't sin. This is why we need other trustworthy brothers and sisters in our lives to be mirrors for us, to help us see. I'd encourage you to go back and look at last week's sermon for more on this, more on how God wants to move our friendships to fellowship through honest and vulnerable relationships that feel really scary, but actually bring lots of life. What do we do with our sins? What do you do with your sin? Well, one of the reasons John wrote the letter of 1 John is to help us to know what to do with our sin. There are lots of things we need help with, but if sin is what separates us from God and invites the judgment of God, then the most loving thing someone can do is to help us address our sin. The main point of our text this morning is that we can take our sins to God because Jesus took our sins to the cross. This is going to be 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 2. So, if you haven't found your way there already, please find 1 John chapter 1. You can use the black Pew Bibles in front of you or your phone, excuse me, your phone or whatever you have that has the Bible on it or in it. First John 1, verse 8. We'll go down through chapter 2, verse 2. Please leave your Bible open. We're going to try to just look at this text bit by bit and see what it has for us on this question. What do we do with our sins? I'm arguing, I think this text says plainly, that we should take our sins to God because Jesus took our sins to the cross. That's the theme of this morning. We can take our sins to God because Jesus took our sins to the cross. First, we'll see that we can take our sins to God, verses 8 through 10, chapter 1, 8 through 10. Second, Jesus took our sins to the cross, 2 1 through 2. So, one, we take our sins to God. Two, Jesus takes our sins to the cross. Now, let me remind you, before we look at the text, something I said last week. The churches that John is writing to were being harassed by teachers who were saying crazy things about sin. In this first chapter of 1 John, John lays out three conditional sentences that summarize the views of his opponents. You know what a conditional sentence is? It's when you say something like, If this, then this. There's a condition. If this is true, then this is true. He does that three times in verses 6, 8, and 10. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. When He says we there, He's not talking about Himself and the churches necessarily. He's talking about these false teachers who are saying that. These these. Guys were going around these churches saying those kinds of things. He summarizes with those three conditional sentences, disrupting the faith of these churches, which is why John writes them a whole letter about assurance, because these teachers were creating all kinds of angst in these believers about whether they were actually saved or not. And John writes so that they might know that they are indeed saved. The point of... The first test in verse 6 that we saw last week is that if you claim to know God but don't care about sin, then, as it says, you lie and do not practice the truth. Those aren't mutually compatible or Christian ideas. The false teachers were likely teaching that someone's spirit couldn't be touched by sin because sin only contaminated the body. So it didn't matter what you did with your body as long as in your heart you loved God. But John says that knowing God with our spirit results in honoring Him with our bodies. That was the first conditional sentence. That was verse 6. That was last week. Now this week we're going to see the second and third one. Verse 8 and verse 10. Number one, we take our sins to God. Let me read verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the second test is verse 8, the second conditional sentence, verse 8. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So here John gives the churches a second aspect of what the false teachers were teaching. It's unclear whether John is saying that these teachers were teaching that they weren't guilty of committing sins, like he says basically... In the next text, test, verse 10, or if he's saying that they had a sinless nature, I kind of lean towards that second option. If we say we have no sin, singular, in other words, that sounds like he's saying if we claim to have no sin nature, then the truth is not in us. But either way you interpret that verse, these teachers are saying that those who have a special knowledge or special anointing from God don't struggle with sin like others do. But in the second half of the conditional sentence John repudiates that claim by saying that those who claim to have no sin deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. These teachers are self-deceived meaning that they're convincing themselves that this is true that this thing is true when it is not true. And not only do they fail to live by the truth they don't even have the truth the truth is not in them. They don't even possess the truth which is instructive for us it means that Even if we think we possess the truth, it doesn't mean that we possess the truth about ourselves. If the truth was in them, they would be aware of their sinfulness. Now, we may not say that we have no sin like these false teachers. I kind of joked about this last week. You probably haven't spoken like this directly to someone. If you have, I'd encourage you not to do that anymore. You know, like, you know how to been having a great stretch for the last 10 years, have no sin. Are you kidding me? Much less 10 days, 10 hours, 10 minutes, no sin. We don't talk like that. I mean, don't talk like that, please, right? Let's let's not talk like that. But we can be guilty of a similar thing when we deny the fact or the guilt of our sin by seeking to interpret Solely in terms of circumstances. Maybe we use things like psychology or physiology or social things happening around us. In other words, if we explain away our sin as a result of our circumstances, our past, even our physical limitations, we may be guilty of minimizing our sin or sin nature. And I will be the first one to tell you that it is very important for you to consider the context for your sins. You don't sin in a vacuum, brothers and sisters. Understanding the context will help you understand why you're drawn back to the same types of sin. But, understanding the context of our sins is not the same thing as minimizing our sin. It doesn't negate the sinfulness of our sin. So we may not say, we have no sin, but we might overemphasize the things that have led to our actions rather than humbly confessing the sinfulness of our actions. So, John describes this claim his opponents claim to be without sin then the corresponding reality reality their self-deception if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves then he moves in verse 9 to a counterclaim in another conditional sentence verse 9 is a counterclaim that opposes verse 8 and i want to point out 3 things from this glorious sentence this sentence is awesome guys this sentence is awesome we're going to be here a while okay get comfortable verse 9 is amazing you've probably heard it so many times this is the kind of sentence to build your life on this is the kind of sentence in the bible to memorize look at it again it's a promise if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness weight of that kind of sentence won't land on you unless you understand the sinfulness of your sin. As long as you understand that you're basically okay and Christianity is kind of just making your life a little bit better. Understanding who you are, what you've done before a holy God, and that the things that you've done and said and thought that have hurt those around you and yourself Until you feel those kinds of things deeply in your soul, then a sentence like this will sound routine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to point out three things in this sentence. First, when John says, At the beginning, if we confess our sins, he uses the present tense of the verb to confess, meaning that this is a continuous action, not a one-time event. He's not talking about when you became a Christian and you admitted to God you were a sinner and you received Christ in faith. He's not talking about a one-time decision you made a long time ago or maybe last weekend. He's not talking about a thing you did once. He's talking about something that you do all the time continuous action. He's talking about a lifestyle. I remember reading Martin Luther's 95 theses in seminary and being blown away at where he started. Everyone's heard about the 95 theses, you know, and you can read them if you want. You know, you're not a like super Christian if you read them or whatever, but the first one is awesome. His very first thesis. He says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, "Repent," He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Do you see what I'm saying? Repentance isn't something you do at the beginning of your faith journey. It's something that characterizes your entire faith journey. Following Jesus means constantly and consistently, Acknowledging acknowledging our sins to God and turning from them. Acknowledging them to God and turning from them. Acknowledging them to God and turning from them. The Christian life is a life, a life, a life of honestly naming our sins to God and, as I said last week, to other believers and turning from them. I'm so glad that he started there actually in verse 6. Is that verse 6? No, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another Because actually, I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, as long as I just talk to God about my sins, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm living a great Christian life. Well, no, he's already said in verse 7, to walk in the light means you're walking with other believers. In a depth of relationship characterized by honesty. The Christian life is a life of honestly naming our sins to God and to other believers and turning from them. And you know, rinse and repeat, until we die. If we confess our sins, means a lifestyle. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing in this sentence I want you to see is that confessing sins to God results in forgiveness and cleansing from God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to to do what? What happens? What happens when we confess to God? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Contrary to the false teachers, walking in the light doesn't mean that those who do so never sin, but that when they do, they don't try to hide it from God. The promise is that when we don't hide our sins from God... When we tell them to Him, what awaits us is acceptance, not condemnation. What awaits us is forgiveness and cleansing. Forgiveness and cleansing is what awaits all those who agree with God about their sin. Cleansing, by the way, or purification, is virtually equivalent to forgiveness in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is prophesying about the new covenant. What would happen when the Messiah comes? He says this. He, he, he puts these two concepts beside each other. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. I will cleanse and I will forgive. I will When the new covenant is enacted, I will cleanse and I will forgive. So when John says... God will forgive and cleanse. I think he's probably thinking about what Jeremiah said. Because this is a promise. This is the central promise of the new covenant. Cleansing and forgiveness from sin. But I think think there's also a distinction here because uh, between forgiveness and cleansing, or John wouldn't have used both words. He could have just said forgiveness or cleansing, but he uses both words. Forgiveness means that God no longer holds people's sins against them. When God forgives us, He cancels the debt that we owe Him, just as a loan is forgiven when you pay it off, or the government pays it off. Cleansing, however, refers to God washing away the defilement that our sins produce. Our sins make us dirty before God. Confessing them, however, John says, opens up the floodwaters of grace. Over us. Sin is a debt that must be paid and a stain that must be removed. And it's a debt that we can't pay and a stain that we can't wash. This is why John says we have to take our dilemma to God. If we confess our sins, He, that He is God, He is faithful to forgive and cleanse. Our sin is a God-sized problem. You cannot take away your own sins. How, how would that even work? The reason this is worth noting is because so many of us, even in the church, and a lot of those we are talking with or building relationships with, as, as Jared just prayed for, so many of us have this built-in idea that if we are just basically good and do, a, do mostly good, then that will outweigh our bad. You know, keep our nose clean, don't hurt anybody, do mostly good, and that cancels out the bad. The problem is well, first of all, it's not in the Bible. Um, Second of all, how does doing a million good things cancel one bad thing committed against a holy God? It just doesn't, it never will. It never will. So we take our dilemma to Him. God is the only one who can address our sin problem. We can't take away our own sins. We can't outwork our sins. We must be honest about the fact that we have sins and then take them to the only one who can do something about them. God. If you confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. Third thing I want you to notice in this sentence is the reason God can do something about our sins is right there. Did you see how He describes God? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, do you suppose, why do you suppose He added that? Why didn't He just say, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us? Because he needs to remind us something about the character of the God who's going to do the forgiving. The character of God is that he's faithful and just. The promise of forgiveness and cleansing is based on the faithfulness and justice of God. He is faithful, meaning that he will fulfill the commitments he's made to his people. He gave his son to atone for their sins, so he'll necessarily forgive and cleanse those who confess their sins. Why would God have sent Jesus to die for sins and then turn around and not offer forgiveness and cleansing to those who turn to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing? God is faithful, meaning He'll always do what He said He'll do. He's faithful. It's not difficult to see why God is said to be faithful, to forgive our sins. That makes sense to us. But why does John say just? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When we think of justice... We usually think of punishment. We think of someone getting what they deserve. Not forgiveness. But John is here saying, it's God's justice that guarantees our forgiveness. What? Do you see the problem with that? God is just. He will punish sinners. And He will forgive sinners. If you confess your sins to Him. What is John saying? What is he doing here? Well, this adjective, just, is also translated righteous in other places throughout the letter and throughout the New Testament. So John is saying in 1.9 that God is righteous when He forgives sinners, that God is acting rightly or righteously when He forgives sinners. But how? Why? This brings up the age-old problem of how God can be righteous if guilty people are forgiven. How can a God who is right all the time let guilty people go where's the righteousness in that shouldn't guilty people be punished guilty people deserve consequences not forgiveness guilty people go to jail they don't get to go free but John says that God is righteous and just and lets guilty people go free what this is awesome news by the way this is amazing news please listen carefully How is this possible? How can God be righteous and let unrighteous people go free? Well, the Apostle Paul dealt with the same problem in Romans 3. You can read verses 21 through 26 if you'd like to later. Paul's answer there in Romans 3 is that God can be both just and the justifier of sinners because Jesus is the propitiation. We're going to get to that word in just a little bit. Or atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul says that God can forgive sinners and be just at the same time because he poured out his justice on Jesus. Jesus drank God's justice so that sinners who trust in Jesus don't have to drink God's justice. John understands the problem in exactly the same way, exactly the same way as Paul. Paul does. He sees the solution to this problem the same way as Paul. In fact, he uses the same word as Paul down in chapter 2, verse 2, which we'll get to in a minute, and over in chapter 4, verse 10, where he basically says God is righteous to forgive sins because he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for sins. Jesus earned our forgiveness through his death on the cross, his wrath-absorbing death on the cross. So it's right for God to give it to those who confess their sins. If Jesus didn't die on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for our sins, then it would be unjust for God just to forgive us. But Jesus did die on the cross to absorb the wrath that our sins deserve. And so it is just for God to forgive us our sins. Because Jesus died for them. God is faithful to forgive our sins because He promised to do so. He never breaks His promises. And He's just to do so because Jesus died. For our sins. Forgiveness and cleansing is available, therefore, to everyone who will confess their sins to God. Meaning that the solution to our greatest problem is available for free to people who will agree with God about their sins. Notice, though, in verse 9, sins is plural. Sins is plural. John is talking about confessing specific sins to God. If we confess our sins, not just agreeing that we're sinners generally, but specifically. Acquittal and washing are for those who deliberately call to mind their particular sins, tell them to God, and forsake them. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: "...whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." The opposite of denying our sins is to make it a habit of bringing them to God so that we can experience the power and peace of His forgiveness and washing. His faithfulness and justice guarantees this for all who do it. So that's the second conditional sentence, verse 8. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, followed up by this counterclaim. but If we confess our sins, so don't do verse 8. If you don't do verse 8, but do verse 9 then you will get forgiveness and cleansing from God. Then there's this third conditional sentence, this third test of these false teachers in verse 10. So look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So here's a third aspect of what these false teachers are teaching. These teachers were claiming to have not sinned, probably not ever, but at least not since they came to know God and received this special anointing from Him, which John will address later in the letter. Now, this is the most blatant of their claims. In theory, they could claim that sin would break their fellowship with God if they had any sin, verse 6, or that sin lives in their nature, verse 8, and yet still deny that they had actually sinned. Verse 10, it seems like these guys are actually saying, We have not sinned. We have not actually sinned. They were claiming that their superior spirituality made them incapable of sinning. The seriousness of this claim, though, is seen in the second half of verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His word is not in us. Him is God. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. To say we haven't sinned is not just a lie, verse 6, or a delusion, verse 8, but actually to accuse God of lying. We make Him a liar. God's Word frequently declares that all of us are sinful. Psalm fourteen three: They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God says in the Old Testament and the New Testament that everyone is a sinner. Romans three twenty three For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So anyone who says that they don't sin is calling God a liar. Now again, we probably aren't bold enough to say that we don't have sin. But as I said last week, if we only acknowledge that we're sinners theoretically and never specifically, aren't we close to the same error? For example, you meet with your your brother, your sister, and you're like, you know, it's been a hard week. I've really been struggling with gluttony or pride or lust or, or laziness, whatever it is, pick your sin. Sins, plural, whatever they are. If you only keep it in the vague universe of generalities and never talk about the ways you've specifically sinned, we're getting close to doing what these false teachers are doing. We're minimizing, rationalizing, and not naming. Let me ask this question. Can you name your sins? Can you name your sins? You probably agree that you're sinful, but do you have trouble finding any? Do you have trouble finding them? And... I'm not going to be out here, like I said last week, you know, with a confessional for you to name me all your sins, you know? And the point of this text and point of my sermon is not that you have to remember every last thing you've ever done wrong and say that back to God or this doesn't apply to you. That's not the point. (laughs) That's not the point. Because guess what? None of us can do that. Can you remember how you sinned on Thursday afternoon? I can't, but I'm sure there was sin there. The point is, are there any ways in which you are naming the specific things in your life that have plagued you, currently plagued you? Do you agree that you're sinful but have trouble finding any sin? One way to call God a liar is to never get around to naming your specific sins. We're not too far from these false teachers if we never get around to naming our sins to God, owning them and forsaking them. In our community group last Sunday evening, Austin pointed out that confessing sins in a Christian context is so backwards for a lot of people because ours is a grace-based religion. Every other religion makes you earn it. Austin, are you in here? Hey, man, I love this word. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Every other religion makes you earn it. Except Christianity. We are a grace-based faith. Which means we're free to talk about specific ways we've sinned. Christianity says you can't earn anything from God, but Jesus, thankfully, earned everything you need from God for you. All you have to do is admit your need. We're just saying this. Anybody? Remember what we were just saying? All you have to do is feel your need for Him. Stop minimizing, ignoring, or saying, you know, I don't really feel bad about that, so it's probably not a big deal. Those who admit their need get grace, not condemnation. Those who admit their sin get forgiveness and cleansing. Those who don't make God out to be a liar. In Christ, you don't have to earn it, man. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn it, brothers and sisters. You don't have to earn it. He earned it for you. So you're free to be honest. And you're free to extend grace and mercy to the brother or sister who sits across from you and confesses their sins to you. You don't minimize, you don't downplay, you you agree with them about the sinfulness of their sins, but you come on heavy and hard with grace. Because it's kindness that changes our hearts, not shame. So, that's number one. (laughs) We take our sins to God. That's chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Number two, we take our sins to God because Jesus took our sins to the cross. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. So, look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here John gives us the alternative to pretending to living without sin. He says he doesn't want Christians to sin, but if we do, there's a remedy. Christians should strive to not sin. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, sin, do your ears perk up when you hear that? Like, oh, thankfully, I am in this letter. Like... You read the first part, you're like, if anyone, you know, don't sin, but if anyone does sin, I'm like, okay, great, that's me, that's me. So the rest of this is for me. Thank you, John, for including me into your letter. He says, we should strive to not sin, but when we do sin, we know where to go. And John's a great pastor. He starts that verse by saying, my little children. He addresses these churches with such great affection. Really, it could be translated, my dear children, my loved children. Children. He loves them, cares deeply for their souls. He wants what's good and right for them. And because He loves them so much, He doesn't want them to do two things there in first, the first verse. He doesn't want them to be too lenient or too severe about their sin. And it's possible for us also to be too lenient or too severe. We probably, based on our dispositions, our personalities, just kind of how we're wired, we probably lean one way or the other. And you know where you are. And um, you know how you feel about those who lean the other way. Like, oh, they're so legalistic. Or, oh, they don't really care about Christ, you know. We struggle with being too lenient, and we struggle with being too strict. But he says, like a good pastor, that both are wrong. Being too lenient can give the impression that sin isn't that big of a deal. So he says, I'm writing this stuff so that you may not sin. He literally says, I'm writing this letter so that you guys stop sinning. He doesn't want to indirectly encourage sin in these Christians by overemphasizing God's provision for the sinner. He doesn't want to be too lenient, but he also doesn't want to be too severe. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Being too severe about sin can give the impression that real Christians never sin. That real Christians have no place in the church. or Excuse me, that real sinners have no place in the church. John contradicts both positions. He doesn't want us to think that sin is okay or to be overcome by guilt and shame when we do sin. He doesn't want us to minimize sin And he wants us to remember that God has made provision for our sins. So to summarize, the Christian life takes sin seriously and takes forgiveness seriously. Our life as Christians is one of battling sin and resting in grace. Battling and resting. Battling and resting in community with one another. I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate. God's provided a remedy The nature of this provision is stated in two ways in verses 1 and 2, the end of verse 1, then into verse 2. First, he says, if we have sin or if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. John says that Jesus is our advocate if we sin. An advocate was someone who was called alongside you to assist you, just like today, to be a mediator, an intercessor, or a helper. The word advocate was also used in a legal sense to describe the counsel for the defense or someone who pled the case of the person on trial. The word for advocate, paraclete, is used here to describe Jesus. Jesus uses the same word in John's gospel to describe the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to be with you, Forever. Another advocate. So Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is another advocate, implying that He's the first advocate, and that's what that's what John is bringing out here. Jesus is the first advocate. The Holy Spirit is the second advocate. Jesus is our advocate in heaven, while the Holy Spirit is Jesus' advocate on earth. The Spirit pleads Jesus' cause on the earth. Jesus pleads our cause in heaven with the Father. G.I. Packer says it this way in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He says, Jesus, the original paraclete, continues His ministry to mankind through the work of the second paraclete. I love the unity within the Trinity we find here in this one word. Jesus and the Spirit are both advocate, just in different ways. Notice, though, that Jesus advocates for us before God as Father, not God as Judge. We have an advocate, look what he says, we have an advocate with the Father. With the Father. Everyone in Christ is now God's child and brought into God's family and no longer under God's judgment. Jesus himself said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So once a sinner has been justified by God, his judge, they enter the family of God and become related to God as father. This means that if we sin as Christians, we don't need another justification from God as judge. As children of God, what we need is the forgiveness of God, our Father. We don't need more justification. We do need more forgiveness. And this is exactly what we've been promised up in Verse 9 of chapter 1, it's all built on the last part of chapter 2, verse 1. It's all because Jesus Christ is the righteous or the righteous one. Our advocate is the righteous one. So when we sin, we have a perfect advocate in heaven who speaks up in our favor. Sean read Romans 8, 34 earlier, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Present tense, He is interceding for us, advocating for us, standing up for us. John Calvin explains how this works. He says, Christ's intercession is the continual application of His death to our salvation. The reason why God does not impute our sins to us is because He looks upon Christ the intercessor repeatedly so to increase our confidence in Jesus' intercession in this great reality John names our advocate as Jesus Christ the righteous he's the righteous Jesus knows no wrong thinks no wrong says no wrong does no wrong feels no wrong he only does what is right all the time so the one who speaks up for us in heaven cannot lose he cannot be wrong. Why? Because he's the righteous one. The person who is always right cannot be wrong, so when he speaks up for you, he's always going to get it right. One who always acts righteously speaks up for us who have not, not acted righteously. So the first thing that John says, the basis of God's remedy, is that Jesus is our... Jesus, the righteous one, is our advocate. And then verse 2. John goes on to say that Jesus is more than an advocate who intercedes for those who have sinned. Verse 2 says that our advocate is also the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's say that word together. Propitiation. Propitiation. Everyone use that in a sentence this week with someone who's not a believer and then just explain to them what that means. Okay? This word is found, I think, three times in the New Testament once here, once in 1 John 4.10 and once in Romans 3. But it's extremely important for how we understand what Jesus did when He died on the cross. This word was used in Greek literature to refer to the appeasement of a deity's wrath or anger through an offering. The appeasement of a deity's wrath or anger through an offering. So, we have to understand that the God of the Bible is a God who has wrath or and anger towards sin. But we also must, must understand that the God of the Bible isn't like His wrath, His judgment, isn't like the fake gods of the nations. God's anger, the God of the Bible's anger, isn't arbitrary or capricious or random. He doesn't have unpredictable mood swings and personal vendettas. Instead, God's wrath is His controlled and settled holy antagonism to all that is evil. And we need to understand that His wrath isn't averted through bribes by us or by a third party. So when I said that the definition was the appeasement of a deity's wrath through an offering, this isn't like you know, an offering that we bring or that someone else brings for us. No, instead the God of the Bible takes the initiative in His propitiation. It was God's idea to avert His own anger by pouring it out on His own Son so that His own people, deserving sinners, wouldn't be consumed by it. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Notice it says Jesus is the propitiation. He's not the propitiator making use of something outside of himself to avert God's anger. He, Jesus, is the propitiation. The righteous one is also the offering. And notice that it says he is, not was, the propitiation. Not because he continues to die on the cross or to con- continue to offer his sacrifice, but because his sacrifice has eternal virtue, which is effective still today to everyone. Who believes? He is right now, in this moment, even for us today in this room, the propitiation for our sins to everyone who believes. Notice then that John closes that verse by saying Jesus' propitiation is for the sins of the whole world, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I know all you hardcore Calvinists want me to do a big thing on limited atonement. Not gonna do that right here. I've done that before. Be happy to do it again. This verse, though, I will say is not teaching universal atonement. This verse doesn't mean that Jesus' death absorbed God's wrath for everyone's sins, or that all sins are automatically pardoned because Jesus died. It doesn't mean that. If it meant that, then everyone would be saved and go to heaven one day because Jesus' death would have taken all of God's wrath for everyone's sin everywhere at all times. But the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, so it can't mean that here. All are not saved, so this has to mean something else. And I'll briefly state that it simply means that a universal pardon is offered for the sins of the whole world and enjoyed by those who embrace it. John says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So who gets eternal life? Whoever believes in Him. It's like you don't get into the movie unless you have the ticket. That's all John is saying. It's a universal offer of pardon to all who will receive it. Whoever believes in the Son can rest assured that Jesus drank all of God's anger toward them for their sins. Anyone in the world who comes to the cross of Christ in faith will leave forgiven and cleansed. So, brothers and sisters, What do you do with your sins? What do you do with your sins? I can't think of a more practical question. What do we do with our sins? Saying we have no sin or don't sin or minimizing and blaming and hiding or lying about our sins won't work to clear our guilt, remove our shame, wash our consciences. So what do we do? Well, John says, rather than hiding and blaming and minimizing, he says, hey, if you'll just agree with God about your sins, you'll get forgiveness and cleansing. Because God is faithful and just. God is faithful and just to offer this promise to you because of Jesus' righteous character, His propitiatory death and His advo- advocacy for us in heaven. I wonder as, if I, as I've been preaching and I know I've said a lot maybe too much. It's a, possible, it's a possibility that this sermon was too long. <laughs> but I wonder as I was explaining some of these things about Jesus what was happening inside of you. This is the God who made you. Who also died for you. And also is still working for you in heaven. Standing up on your behalf. Advocating, interceding, pleading. Right now, still working. The righteous one. He came to this earth and never did anything wrong. Like he didn't go like a few months with a, you know, a good, you know, good slate for a few months. He never, never did anything wrong. Ever. Not a thought, a feeling, an impulse, a reaction, a word, an action. Nothing. You know, like, do you know how hard it is to not sin? Like try to do it for 60 seconds. It is so stinking hard to not sin. Jesus never sinned. He worked so hard to live the life that we can never live and then absorb the wrath of God. Like We are crushed when someone we love is angry with us. Can you imagine imagine drinking the anger of God for the sins of the world? Just drinking that into your being? The nails weren't the most painful things for Jesus in that moment. As He did that, He did that for you. For you. Then He rises, of course, ascends to the Father, and He's still working. He's still working. He's still working, advocating, interceding, loving you. These are the kinds of truths that start to help us see the sinfulness of our sin. Jesus did all of that for our sins, verse 2. For our sins. Not our theoretical doctrine of sin, but for the specific ways we've not pleased the God who made us. For the specific ways we've hurt others and ourselves. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. and advocates for us even right now. So, friends, if you're not yet a Christian and you're here, we'd love to talk to you about what following Jesus looks like. Grab me or the person you came with afterwards just to ask your questions. This is a safe place to ask your questions and to bring your doubts and confusions about Christ and His Word. But I would say, if you're not yet a Christian, the only place to take your sins is to the one who took your sins, Jesus. When you go to Jesus with your sins, you'll only leave with forgiveness and cleansing, not with more shame or condemnation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you because of Jesus' work, because of His person, because he's the righteous one and our advocate and our propitiation, the propitiation for our sins. It really is all about Jesus. Father, we're so grateful for your son. Please stir up our hearts for him. Please stir up our affections for him. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. And help us to see the ugliness of our sins and to be quick to agree with you about them and to also confess them to others so that we might be cleansed and forgiven and healed and made more and more into the image of our beautiful Savior we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit so send the Holy Spirit fill us strengthen us empower us Comfort us. Help us, Holy Spirit. We absolutely can't do these things without you. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.